morning, Resurrection. My name is Father Jonathan Warren Pagan. I'm one of the assisting priests here at Res. Really glad to be here with you this morning. And this morning, I want to begin by reminding us what we're doing as we gather here on Sunday morning. By the way, hello, if you're joining us on the live stream, I want to welcome you too. Each week when we gather here, we confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We'll do it right after the sermon. And when we do that, we do so joining churches around the globe and throughout history in doing that. Churches have assembled and confessed their faith together each week using that creed since the 4th century, since 325 A.D. Now, when we say that creed together, we profess something about the church. I'm going to test you all now, right now, so I'm going to ask you to say it with me. We say that we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Very nice. Y'all are so well catechized. That's really awesome. I want to pause on that word Catholic for just a minute and remind us what it means, because that's going to help us remember why we're here. As I understand that word, it has three dimensions. First, it has a quantitative dimension. It refers to the whole company of saints that have gone before us and that accompany us worldwide on the journey that we live through life now. In America, it's easy for us to think that it's just the Bible and us here in our little church in South Austin. But brothers and sisters, I want you to think about what it means that we belong to this deep and rich tradition that spans millennia and the entirety of the globe. There's over two billion of us walking around on the planet right now. It's pretty amazing. The second thing is it has a qualitative dimension. By this I mean that Christianity encompasses every tribe, tongue, and nation. Just like Revelation 7-9 says. What that means is that Christianity is capable of, of finding indigenous expression among every people group that has ever existed. Christianity is the only religion of its kind in this respect. Our sacred text can be translated into every language and can be expressed in terms of the hopes and the aspirations and the patterns of thought of every single people group on the entirety of the planet. And in that way, every culture can discover that the person of Jesus answers to the deepest and most restless longings of their hearts. Now, I've got to stop here for just a second because this is too good not to spend a little bit of time with. Now, Laman Sana, who's a historian of world Christianity from the Gambia in West Africa, he just died a few years ago, wrote this amazing and fabulous book called Disciples of All Nations. Here's what he says in the introduction to that book. He says, more people pray and worship in more languages and with more differences in styles of worship in Christianity than in any other religion. Well over 3,000 of the world's languages are embraced by Christianity through Bible translation, prayer, liturgy, hymns, and literature. 3,000 languages, y'all. And get this, Sana goes on to say that over 90% of these languages have a grammar and a dictionary because Christians wanted these people groups to be able to worship Jesus in their own language, to read the Bible in their own language. Christian missionaries, not just from the West, but from Latin America, Asia, Africa, brought these gifts to the peoples of the world so that they could have the privilege and the glory of knowing Jesus and praising Jesus in their own language. Now, to profess the Catholicity of the church is to celebrate the fact that in this assembly, we are mystically united with the whole breadth of human civilizations that Jesus Christ has redeemed. For that reason, the book of Haggai says that the God of Israel is the desire of every nation. So lastly, Catholicity has a cosmic dimension. 
We are part of the communion of saints, a mystical reality that encompasses the quantitative and the qualitative aspects that I mentioned already. But it goes beyond those aspects to include the angels, the archangels, and the whole company of heaven in that communion of saints. We say that every single week during the Eucharistic liturgy. Listen out for that. We join our prayers to angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. When we assemble on Sunday morning, and that's actually, by the way, the meaning of the Greek term that we translate church in Scripture. It means assembly. We are participating in the fullness of this reality. We are participating in a global, historic, multi-ethnic, multicultural, cosmic mystery that we cannot begin to fathom. We are a fragment of the whole of what God is doing. And even what we see of what he's doing in our midst is only a fragment of what God is actually doing. The Holy Spirit of God is at work among every people, at every time, and in every place, unseen to you and me until he desires to make that work visible to you and me. And when he does, it is electrifying. We suddenly get a glimpse of what is happening in that unseen realm, and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that reality is not secular. It is charged with the glory and the grandeur of God. We are suddenly given a new perception of the world. A different set of lenses with which to see reality. And that perception changes us. What Jesus wants to do for us this morning as we gather here is to give us a fresh vision of what he has been doing and what he is doing right now. He wants to give us new eyes to see how big God's mission is. He He wants us to see his invitation to us here in this moment to participate in that mission. Now, I start with that little theological digression. It doesn't have much to do with the Gospel of Mark, but it does have something to do with it, and you'll see in just a minute. I start with that little theological digression because the Gospel of Mark this morning is, is describing a problem that the disciples have with vision. It's a perception problem that the disciples have. They are mired in these myopic disputes with each other, and they can't see the big picture of what God is doing. I mean, Jesus takes the disciples to school in this passage because they cannot understand who he is or what he is doing. They see reality one way, Jesus sees it another, and Jesus is trying to give them the lenses with which to see reality as he sees it. And just like the disciples, we need the perception that Jesus wants to give us if we're going to believe what Jesus says about the world and then act accordingly. What we believe about reality is, if we're being honest, probably something closer to what the disciples believe about reality because actually that's pretty much what every human being ever believes about what reality really is. Now here in a nutshell is what the disciples believe about reality and really again what practically every human being in history thinks reality is at, at base at, at a uh, kind of a root level. The, what the, the story is is something like this. The world is a scary and dangerous place because resources are scarce and humans are selfish and wicked and greedy. So life is a competition. My tribe versus the world for fame, status, glory, money, sex, power. And the goal of my life is to get my friends and me on top so that we can secure good things for our people and then slam the door on our enemies on the way in. You see what I'm saying? You got to dominate or you will be dominated. You got to stomp on everybody or you're going to get stomped on. Let's call this for brevity's sake the secular story of the world. Now, I want to say this, I want to be clear about this. The disciples know at a cognitive level that the secular story is not true. They know their scriptures and the scriptures tell a different story. 
Their God demands that they love him above all and their neighbors as themselves. And yet clearly in this exchange with Jesus, even though they live on a daily basis with the Holy One of Israel in flesh, walking around among them, we see on this, in this story, in this exchange, that the true story of the world has not made much progress in their hearts and in their imaginations. The secular story is resilient. It's resilient in all of us. It's nearly invincible against all ideological attempts to overcome it. It seems to be deeply sedimented in the human experience and human consciousness, the human imagination, the human hearts. And it's a blindness to truth that affects everybody equally. Mark's gospel makes this point over and over again. Mark's gospel is full of all of these ironies and inversions and reversals. If you read the gospel of Mark later, you'll see it over and over again. This like the surprising inversions and reversals. The people who are supposed to be able to see and teach the people of Israel resist the truth when Jesus speaks it. And eventually they seek to put him to death. In the whole of Mark's gospel, the only beings outside of the disciples who recognize who Jesus actually is are a a man who's been blind since birth. It's actually in the same chapter. You can go and read that later. And the demons that Jesus casts out. That's pretty bleak, right? Everybody else either looks down on Jesus or they think he's crazy or they hate his guts. That is bleak. It's a bleak affirmation of the universality of spiritual blindness. And the disciples, despite professing that Jesus is the Messiah, they don't actually get who Jesus is. They understand that he's the Messiah, of course. They make that claim. But their understanding of who the Messiah is is utter garbage. And the setup to this story is kind of one example of this this theme of inversion in Mark's gospel. The background that you need to know from the Old Testament to understand the setup of this story is from the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah has been prophesying that Israel in his disobedience is being judged by God. It's going to be sent into exile and everything is going to be lost, right? But then it turns in Isaiah 35 and he pronounces this beautiful blessing. The land that has been cracked and ruined is going to be watered by this gentle rain and the desert will bloom. And that's actually this incredible metaphor for God coming to his people in the midst of desolation and reviving them. This passage has been so important to Mother Tish and me that we actually named our first daughter after it, Rain Mercy. In verse 10 of that passage, it says that the people of Israel will return to Zion, to Jerusalem, in a victory procession. And it says, only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. So as Mark sets the stage for this conversation between Jesus and the disciples, he makes it clear that they're setting out from Galilee where Jesus has been enacting and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And they're heading towards Jerusalem, towards Zion. Like, this is the victory procession. This is the kingdom of God enfleshed in the person of the Messiah coming to Zion, returning with victory. It says even Jesus was leading the way in this victory procession. And as Mark lays this out, it's like kind of funny. I think it's meant to be funny. Because it doesn't look anything like what Isaiah has described, right? It's not glorious at all. It's like a bunch of dirty and confused and bumbling fishermen shambling towards the kingdom. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my gosh! So, and then it says, and I love this too, it says, the disciples were astonished. Or, or I think the, the NRSV has, they were amazed. And some of them were afraid, right? Like the word astonished here, it, it doesn't just mean like they were surprised. It means like, we're a little concerned, Jesus! <laughs> Like, imagine how you would feel if you showed up to, like, you know, I'm going to join the conquering divine hero as he overtakes the, you know, Zion, our home, from these pagan Romans, right? And you show up, and you're expecting Aragorn going up against the orcs or something, right? No, it's Jesus and the 12 disciples, 
and we're going up against the toughest army in the world, right? And Jesus, is t- Jesus turns around and says, hey, the victory is me dying. <laughs> like, are you sure? <laughs> you know? This is the first reversal in this passage in the Gospel of Mark, right? The commentator Joel Marcus puts it this way. The fearful trek of the befuddled, bedraggled band of disciples is the return of Israel to Zion. And Jesus' suffering and death are the prophesied apocalyptic victory of the divine warrior. Like, if you don't see the world like Jesus sees the world, it's beyond ridiculous to imagine following him into Jerusalem under these conditions. And the second reversal in this same passage comes immediately after this. The disciples, as confused as they are, have been given enough light to realize what's happening. They realize, okay, we're in the victory procession. We're following the Messiah into Jerusalem. But they don't have the lenses of Jesus. They cannot grasp why he's doing what he's doing or why he just said the super weird thing that he just said to them. Like, despite all of that, right, Jesus, like, you're about to unleash the hosts of heaven on these pagan infidels, and you're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. I mean, it's going to be a bloodbath, right, Jesus? Like, and then when you win, you're going to give places of authority, influence, and power to your friends, right, Jesus? And so the sons of Zebedee, James and John, come running up to Jesus to try to cut a deal with him. Rabbi, they say, give us whatever we ask for. Choose one of us to sit on your right hand and one on your left. That, we don't just want to be your friends and get favors. We want to rule together with you. We want to be co-regents uh, with you on the throne of Israel. That's like kind of a big ask, right? <laughs> like the kingdom, of course, in their minds is Jesus living large with his friends in the royal palace after he slaughtered the pagans. So I was like meditating on this passage before. My, in my imagination, it was like Tony Montana sitting in the palace at the end of Scarface. <laughs> Anyway, all right. Uh, If you haven't seen Scarface, don't worry about it. Anyway, all right. But for the disciples, the new age that Jesus ushers in with his kingdom in their minds will be exactly like the old age with the exact same power structure, except with a new cast of characters on top. For the arrogant, tyrannical Romans, James and John would substitute themselves as the arrogant tyrants. The other disciples are just mad because they didn't get there first. Like, that was a great idea. I wish I had had that one, you know? But then the second reversal comes, and it's, it is Jesus seeing what is in the disciples' hearts and speaking directly to it. I mean, they want to be great. They want to be first, right? They want glory, status, sex, money, power for their tribe. It's the secular story, right? The Romans have been on top for too long. Now it's our time. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't shame the disciples for this, like, crass desire. He doesn't tell them that they want the wrong thing. They're like, it's not bad that you want to be great, that you want to be first. He doesn't say, stop trying to be great. Learn some humility, y'all. What he tells them is they have the wrong set of lenses to see what true greatness looks like. The commentator Timothy Geddert says this, the disciples are not consigned to last place. They are shown how they can be first. They are not consigned to slavery status. They are shown how to become great. Jesus is not saying, hey, stop trying to have so much dignity. He's saying, you're looking for dignity in all the wrong places. The secular story, you have to dominate or be dominated, depends upon a certain way of seeing what greatness is. Jesus says, if you see the world from my point of view, that vision of greatness is actually everything that's wrong with the world. That's why the world is cracked and broken and spinning off of its moral axis. Like, if that's your vision of greatness, it's because you're not seeing straight, Jesus says. You do not really believe that God created you 
and knows every hair on your head and loves you with an undying and relentless love that you cannot escape. It's because you think you have to take care of yourself. That your heavenly father does not actually own the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, he made it all and he owns it all. And all of it belongs to you. You think that you have to get honor and status and good things for yourself. And that's why you think greatness is what you think it is. What you need, Jesus says, is my eyes, my perception. Then you'll see what greatness is. Then you'll see what victory is. You'll see that it's not rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. It's giving your life away like the Son of Man does. Because if you know that God loves you in the same way and with the same measure that he loves Jesus, that he wants communion with you with the kind of intimacy that he has with Jesus, then you want everybody else in the world to be liberated with that same truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it will set you free to free others. True greatness is taking the low place, becoming the servant of all. Not because that's a good thing in and of itself. Exaltation follows suffering in Scripture every time. That pairing is always made. It's not a good thing in and of itself. It's good because of what it accomplishes. It's good because when we become small and we become humble, other people can see the goodness and the love of God shining through us. We become windows that are transparent, that people can see through. They can see how much God loves them, and they are liberated to love God in return. That is beautiful. That is glorious. That is righteous. That is morally beautiful. That is victory and glory. That makes the whole company of heaven, all the angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven, stand up and cheer. Amen? Amen. So throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus tells the disciples over and over again that he's going to be put to shame, that he is going to be crucified, that he's going to die. But in verse 45, it's the only place in all of Mark's gospel where Jesus says, why? Why is this happening? He says he will give his life as a ransom for many. And it's kind of like, what, what does that mean? Well, what ought to be happening in our heads if we know the whole story is that Old Testament alarm bells ought to be going off. The idea of ransom is closely associated in the Old Testament with the person of the kinsman redeemer. We first hear about this person in Leviticus 25. In that chapter, we're told that the land is not to be sold permanently because it all belongs to God. Now, this is one of these things. I didn't learn this in Sunday school growing up. This is like super anti-capitalist Jesus here. You know what I'm saying? Um, But listen, it says the land is not to be sold permanently because it all belongs to God. If someone has through hardship or foolishness lost their property, there's supposed to be a great reset every 50 years called the year of Jubilee. Anybody here heard of the year of Jubilee? Every 50 years, all the property gets reset and goes back to the, the, the boundaries that God set out um, in the conquest of the promised land. This is a, you know, so in, in Leviticus 25, it lays out this vision for the year of Jubilee. But then in verse 25, God goes further and he says that if someone loses their land, even before the year of Jubilee, someone from their family, their tribe, is supposed to come and in a very self-sacrificial way take the financial burdens of this poor person as their very own and buy back or redeem the land on behalf of that poor person. They are meant to pay a ransom to buy back the rights of this person to dignity and full, like, full participation in the people of God. That person is called a goel, a kinsman redeemer. The most recognizable kinsman redeemer from the Old Testament. Anybody know? Just shout it out. Boaz, absolutely. Yeah, know your Bible. I love it. 
Boaz redeems Ruth, of course, out of her degraded place and restores her to full dignity and membership among the people of God. But the term actually is also applied to God himself throughout the Old Testament, but especially in the prophet Isaiah. In the New Testament, it is Jesus who is the God of Israel incarnate, who is the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. We have, as it were, become poor. We have sold ourselves into slavery. We have lost our birthright of communion with God. And the consequence of this, as Mark indicates in this passage, is a complete and total and catastrophic loss of vision. We can't see what constitutes true greatness. And true greatness, when we actually see it, looks like dishonor and foolishness to us. Jesus, the kinsman redeemer, literally stands in our place by assuming our common humanity, taking all of our burdens upon himself and paying with his own life the ransom to liberate us from that slavery to the power of sin and death so that we can have restored vision, right perception. We can recognize true greatness. We can love God first and foremost and our neighbor as ourselves and participate fully in that mission of God to redeem everyone and every culture and every nation to himself. Amen? The need for renewed vision is what Mark's gospel highlights over and over. And he says, that's what Jesus died for. That we might see the world like Jesus does. So as I close, I want to return to what I talked about at the very beginning. The Catholicity of the church. The evidence that God gives us that can help us to actually have some confidence that what Jesus says is true are the lives of those who have ventured everything upon him and have demonstrated that it is possible to to participate in the glory that Jesus shows us, the true greatness that Jesus shows us. Now look, I've studied church history very deeply. I understand it is a deeply mixed bag. I'm not trying to tell you that church history is going to be the answer for any doubts that you might have. But we need to know these friends in Christ. The saints, these brothers and sisters spread throughout the the globe and throughout history are lamps that can illuminate our paths to Christ. We should be looking to them and how they have trusted Jesus and how they have met him in Scripture to guide us and what it looks like to have faith in Jesus. A saint is not a flawless person, not by a stretch. It's simply someone who has trusted Jesus and has become a window through which others can see the truth and be set free. It's in that sense that the French Catholic novelist Léon Blois has said that there is only one tragedy, and that is not to be a saint. I mean, we can look to Teresa of Avila in the 17th century. She dedicated her entire life of singleness to prayer and poured herself out to teach others to pray. She wrote some of the most beautiful, lyrical, gorgeous prayer poems in the whole history of Christianity. My favorite of her poesias, she was Spanish, has this line. Quien a Dios tiene nada le falta. Whoever has God lacks nothing. Solo Dios basta. Only God is enough. We can look to Watchman Nee, who was an evangelist in 1930s China who rebuked Western missionaries for their collaboration with Anglo-American colonial power and helped to create an authentic indigenous Chinese Christianity. He planted over 400 churches in his lifetime, and he spent over 20 years in prison, imprisoned by the Maoists. He eventually died in prison as a martyr. His motto was this, I want nothing for myself. I want everything for the Lord. These people saw the world like Jesus did. They saw what true greatness looked like. They were not perfect people. They were redeemed people. They were people who had been bought back from the power of sin and death. And that's beautiful. That's victory. That's glory. It's only if we can see the world as Jesus does that we're going to take him at his word. That true greatness looks like smallness and a life devoted to others. 
Having the mind of Christ given to you is a miracle. Mark tells us in no uncertain terms that if anyone believes the words in the ministry of Jesus, it is because God has worked a miracle in their hearts. He's given them sight. He's given them the ability to see the world like Jesus does. The people who should have recognized Jesus didn't. The disciples themselves couldn't understand what Jesus was about. But yet, here's the reality. It's a miracle, but it's a miracle that God delights to give us. If we ask him, he'll do it for us. So listen, if you're here today and you're struggling to have faith in Jesus, you're full of doubts, if you're skeptical about his understanding of what true greatness is, then I ask you to take this next few moments as we pause in silence to pray. To ask God to give you the vision, the perception of Jesus, to see the world like Jesus does. And if you do see the world like Jesus does, praise God. God has worked a miracle in your heart. Praise God for that. What I'd like you to do is to take the next few moments to ask Jesus how he might want you to respond. In what way can you follow him today into true greatness to become the servant of all the others that God has placed in your life? You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.